I want to speak to you about the relevance of 1 Timothy. Why would we read a letter written 2,000 years ago simply because it is in the Bible? Well, that would be reason enough, but let me add to that. Our lives exist generation by generation with a need. Every generation needs to think through why the church of the Lord Jesus matters, how the church of the Lord Jesus should be led, why false teaching poisons your soul, why sound doctrine is vital to your health, how the people of God should conduct themselves in the earthly sphere and as heavenly citizens representing Christ. We should think through how to strive for godliness and virtue. None of these things must be assumed. They must all be said, taught, explained, generation by generation. We don't assume. We want to explicitly say, and from the words of the Scriptures which say them, what the Bible expects of us and what it reveals of God. These kinds of subjects and more are found in the letter known as 1 Timothy. We're calling it a letter. It is that. It is a letter from Paul to Timothy. We're looking at a form of personal correspondence. If Timothy wrote to Paul first, we don't have that letter. We have Paul addressing these things to Timothy that are on his mind. It's a form of personal correspondence from an ancient world. You're reading an old letter. You ever get excited about finding something old in your house or someone else's where you say, this was from the early 1900s. Or here's a letter from the 1800s. Or here's this thing from generations gone by. This letter is 2,000 years old. That ought to absolutely amaze us. Here we are reading it 2,000 years later, ancient correspondence. And a typical letter in Paul's day would have several parts. This is not a, a out of this world. Um, an opening, a letter body, and a conclusion. Aren't you glad you came this morning for that? That's new information. No, this is not new information. We write letters the same way. Letter opening, a body of the letter, and a conclusion. Now, what is interesting is the letter opening in Paul's day had a certain convention to it. It began with the author's name. You might end a letter with your name. The letters in the ancient world would typically begin with the writer's name. And then it would be followed by the recipient's name, some kind of greeting, and then they would launch into some kind of thanksgiving or concern that brought about the body of the letter. In, our, in the uh, part of uh, the message this morning, we will see the opening, but we're actually going to peek into verses 3 and 4, which will take us beyond the opening greeting and into some of Paul's primary concerns in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at the writer. In verse 1, the writer is named. He names himself. He's Paul. And the letter author is the author of 13 New Testament letters. All the letters in the New Testament that are written by Paul have his name in the opening verse. He doesn't bury the lead at all. You know they're from him. He opens with it. Most of the letters that he writes are written to cities. Letters to places like Colossae or Philippi, which take on the names Philippians and Colossians because of the region or the city that's in view. But a few of his letters are addressed to people. Two of these personal letters are actually addressed to Timothy. Um, we have called these 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy in church history just to keep the order straight. And it's not because of length. 1 Timothy was written first and 2 Timothy later. But when Paul wrote this to Timothy, I don't think he put 1 Timothy at the top. Instead, this was the letter to Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
Now, this name Paul is familiar outside the New Testament letters. If we know the book of Acts, we know that Paul had mission work in the book of Acts. And we know he didn't start out a missionary. Well, we know of Paul, according to the opening chapters of Acts, is that Paul is part of a growing, persecuting uh, sect of those against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is converted in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, on the road to persecute Christians. The Apostle Paul encounters the risen Lord Jesus from heaven. He had been a non-Christian Pharisee, convinced that the Christian movement should be stamped out. And as a persecutor of the church, the Lord, by His sovereign grace, appointed Paul an apostle to the nations. Now, sometimes other terms follow his name in his letters. He'll call himself some kind of title. You'll see him say sometimes, Paul, a servant. A servant of Christ Jesus. Or he might say, Paul, a prisoner. Because he has some of these letters that he writes... From jail. But there are occasions where he will say Paul and he will refer to his authority as a God called minister of the gospel. And in this case, the term apostle is what captures it. The word apostle. Now, if somebody said to you, What does it mean that Paul is an apostle? Would you know what it means to explain the apostleship of Paul? An apostle is someone who is under authority. The word means to be sent on behalf of another, to represent them. Paul doesn't come in his own authority. He doesn't write in his own authority. He doesn't minister in his own authority. He's an apostle of Christ. To say he's an apostle of Christ Jesus is to say, I'm not here of my own accord. I've been sent. I'm one sent on behalf of. And the authority by which Paul writes is the supreme authority in the universe. There is no higher authority By which someone can make an appeal. Paul has called himself here an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle was someone who had encountered the risen Christ, commissioned by the risen Jesus. If you read the account of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, he fulfills those two criteria. He has encountered Christ, for Jesus from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then we find in Acts 9, not only the encounter with the risen Christ, but Paul is commissioned by Jesus to go. And even through much suffering and hardship, he will represent the name of Christ and spread the gospel of Jesus in the known world. So according to Acts 9, Paul becomes an apostle. And he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. We might typically say Jesus Christ. What are we saying when we use the word Christ? Well, if we know what the word apostle means, it's someone who's sent on behalf of, he's appealing here to the authority of Jesus by using the word Christ. It's a New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament word Messiah. It's a title. A Messiah in the Old Testament or the Christ in the New Testament means king. Who does Paul represent? I'm an apostle, he says, of Christ Jesus, or let's put it this way, I'm an apostle of King Jesus. King Jesus is not an inaccurate uh, phrasing. King Jesus is an accurate way of understanding what Christ Jesus is getting at. Paul represents King Jesus. You know, you used to imagine someone uh, in a political or social uh, status or rank throughout our world sending you some correspondence. 
and you, you look at the outside of the envelope and you're looking through the other mail and all of a sudden you drop the other mail because on the top of this envelope is it's from the office of or administration of and you can just fill in the blank. That's going to be the first thing you open. Okay, you're, you're just like, all right, what is this from? This is an appeal of some kind of authority. Timothy is receiving a letter from Paul who is writing on the basis of the authority of King Jesus, no higher authority to write in light of. The, the basis of Paul's apostleship is the command of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command. He did not see a vacancy that he volunteered for. It's not why he's an apostle. They didn't say, Paul, when you're growing up, what is it that you want to be? I have my eyes set on being an apostle. Paul is an apostle by command, not his own. Look at the twofold source of the command. He's an apostle by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. This is a divine source of his apostleship. It's twofold. God our Savior, Christ Jesus our hope. It's by divine command. Don't miss the fact that with the word God, Paul has placed the construction Christ Jesus right beside him. For Paul to say, God has set me apart, or I'm an apostle by divine command, it is not wrong for him to say it's of Christ Jesus as well. Because that is to say, in the same breath, a divine command. This is an exalted view of Jesus. Who does Paul believe Jesus is? The one who gives the commands of God. That's who. The one who speaks by divine command of God and of Christ Jesus. We could reason, I think, plausibly that this means God the Father and Christ Jesus the Son. God and Christ Jesus alongside one another in this way with the and between them. We could imply that Paul is saying, I'm, I've been given a divine command by the Father and by the Son, by God and by Christ Jesus. This matters for how we understand Paul's letters. Have you ever come across someone who's vaguely familiar with teachings of Christ and teachings of, of Paul, and they say, well, you know, when I, when I think about the New Testament and the words I want to live by, I really focus on those red letters. You know, the way Paul's teaching, it's like, yeah, you know, he's not Jesus. It's not like Paul walked out of an empty tomb. Uh, so you have, you have Jesus' words in the Gospels. It's like, isn't that what we're supposed to live by? And I think that reasoning demonstrates... A faulty view of understanding how the New Testament relates to the Old and how the authority of Jesus Christ is embedded in the Scriptures. When Paul writes to Timothy, he does so under the divine command and authority of Jesus Christ. Timothy should take so seriously Paul's words that it's as if the living Christ himself is saying them to Timothy. So put all of 1 Timothy in red letters. It's the word of the living Christ through Paul, his apostle, to Timothy, the recipient. We don't want to put up with any nonsense of we're pitting the words of Jesus against the words of the apostle Paul. The words of Paul are written in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are equal in authority to everything you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not less. So when Paul writes... He writes these words to Timothy in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as an apostle by divine command, a command of God 
our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope. Calling God our Savior is significant. This is part of what Paul wants to emphasize at various points in the letter. This is such a Paul-like thing to do. He gives you little foreshadowings in his introductions of things that he makes a much bigger deal about later on. He doesn't open every letter talking about God being our Savior. But that is going to be a key idea in parts of 1 Timothy. So you know what he does in his greeting? He fits that in there. And you don't even know at that time, as you're reading those words, how important that idea is going to be. It's like reading a great book written by a very thoughtful author who's considered the whole thing from front to back. And they have, they have carefully woven in things at the beginning that you realize later on are much more important than you realized at the first. God is called our Savior and the Israelites know what it's like to call God their Savior. They're an Exodus people. Consider their background. Paul himself is in continuity with the people of Israel of old who have, who have, uh, pr- who have uh, been receiving those oracles of God in the Old Testament. Divine revelation and signs and wonders. They're an Exodus people. They were in Egyptian captivity. And what has God done for them? He saved them. He delivered them. God is the Savior, the God of the Old Testament is the one whose authority Paul writes in. Not a different God, not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New. The God who is the Savior in the Old Testament and the Savior in the New, same God. The triune God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Calling God the Savior not only brings to mind Old Testament background, it has some Roman background of interest as well. They were very prone in the ancient world in first century Rome to consider Roman emperors as a kind of cult savior, some kind of figure that could receive veneration and honor, honor in a worshipful way, honor that would be equivalent to blasphemy, honor and worship and glory and titles like savior and deliverer that are rightly given only to God. They were ascribed to some Roman emperors as well. So in the first century Roman world, who does Paul call the savior? Not the emperor. Far from that, but the living God. God is the Savior, and this command is not only of God, but of the Father, but of Christ Jesus, our hope. Christ Jesus, our hope. There we have that word Christ Jesus again, that phrase. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, and this command as an apostle is from Christ Jesus as well. We see this in Acts 9, and Paul never forgot what happened to him, that the living Christ ascended in glory, has spoken from heaven and arrested the attention of Paul's heart and mind and it changed him. To encounter the truth of the resurrection of Christ is to change Paul. And in Acts 9, he is a commissioned man. Christ Jesus is called our hope. Paul knows what it is to be a people of hope. To be part of the Israelite continuity and remnant throughout the ages of those who knew the scriptures and hoped in God's deliverer. He promised one. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, the the tracing of that promised seed begins. Generation by generation, longing for the one who would crush the serpent, who would reverse the curse, who would bring deliverance from corruption and death, who would save us from our sin. The hope in the Old Testament was for salvation, for the liberation of the people of God, the vindication of God's people, and the vanquishing of God's enemies. And the hope of the Old Testament is embodied in Christ Christ. Jesus. So if someone says, well, you know, I really need some hope. I'm really looking for some hope. I really hope I have hope. For Paul, he always has hope because he always has Jesus. Who is Christ Jesus for Paul? Our hope. That's what he is. 
Christ Jesus is our hope because he's died for our sins. He's risen from the dead. He's exalted over heaven and earth. And his return will bring about the consummation of the ages. It is with full-throated confidence and conviction, Paul says, I am an apostle by divine command. The command of the Father, the command of the Son. And who is Christ Jesus? He is our hope, not a dead hope. What hope would he be if his body was still there? He's a living hope. The grave is empty. We've looked here at the opening line. You might think, he is not moving very fast. Well, listen, there are a lot more words in this one than in verse 2. But nevertheless, in verse 1, the opening greeting is the writer. And he doesn't just say, I'm Paul. He says some things about himself. It's worthy to reflect on those matters. Let's look at the recipient. The recipient is Timothy in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. The second half of verse 2 is the greeting. So let's look briefly at the recipient. Who is this Timothy? Well, the first time Timothy's mentioned is in the book of Acts. It's in Acts 16, where in Lystra, during Paul's second missionary journey, Timothy's name appears. We know from the book of uh, Acts, as well as from 2 Timothy, that Timothy is raised by a Jewish mother and by a Gentile father. We don't know anything about his father's spiritual condition, but we know that his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois, taught him from the scriptures and pointed him to salvation. Paul calls Timothy my true child in the faith. Not because Paul is literally Timothy's dad. That's, Timothy is not his actual child. To speak as a, uh, as a um, spiritual father, though, to this true child, it's a way of talking about their relationship as like mentor and mentee. Here's the spiritual father and the son in the faith. By calling Timothy my true child in the faith, he is confirming Timothy's salvation. He is someone in the faith. And that they have a prior established relationship that has uh, consisted of not just correspondence. Timothy's traveled with Paul. We know that he's a traveling companion with Paul and others during his second missionary journey, during Paul's third missionary journey. We know that there are sometimes letters written to others from Paul and Timothy right there at the top, where Timothy's not one of the recipients, but one of the co-senders. Timothy is a young man. We learn this from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4. 1 Timothy indicates that Timothy as a youth would likely be in his 20s or late 20s, uh, pushing 30. Youth did not just uh, belong to, as a term, the, the teenage years and then adulthood. Uh, youthfulness could extend beyond teens into the 20s. Timothy is a young man, a true child in the faith. We can talk about having faith in Christ, and by that we mean that subjective trust in one's heart to rely upon all that God is for us in Christ Jesus, not upon our own works, but to trust and receive by faith the promises of God. That is not what faith here means. Here, this idea of the faith is not about one's subjective trust in God, but the objective content believed. Here in verse 2, Timothy is a true child in the faith, an identifiable set of beliefs that Christians confess. Things like that Jesus is the Christ. Things like that Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the dead. Things like that only through the work upon the cross is there salvation for sinners. These are the things Paul teaches in his missionary journeys in Acts that he writes to the churches to insist upon and that are all grounded in what the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John also are a foundation to teach. The faith. 
Now, obviously, there are matters of biblical interpretation that are not primary gospel issues that believers, hopefully in civil and peaceful fellowship, can agree to disagree about. But the matters of what are called the faith are not flexible. In other words, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done are not the kinds of things where we say, well, you know, as a Christian, here's who I think Jesus is, and it's different from what the Bible teaches. We would call such deviation from the faith heresy and false doctrine and cultishness. For someone to say, well, you know, I don't think the the Son is eternal. I think that God at some point created the Son of God. Or if we would say, I don't think the Son of God was risen from the dead. You know, I'm still a Christian. I just don't believe all the stuff that the Bible teaches about Jesus. We see the moon, then we have a problem because Paul would not affirm you as a child in the faith, but someone outside of the faith. Timothy's not outside of the faith. Paul and Timothy believe what Christians believe. And he affirms Timothy's standing. Here in in the end of verse 2, we move from the writer to the recipient to the greeting. At the end of verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. Sometimes Paul just says grace and peace. In fact, most of the time he just says grace and peace. So it might come as a surprise. You raise your eyebrow and you think there's a third word here. I've read a lot of Paul's letters and rarely there's something like this. A third word, grace, mercy, and peace. And you know what he does? Just like he gave you a dual source for his command of apostleship, he gives you a twofold source of the blessing. This prayer blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace from whom? From God the Father, now explicit. The Father and, here it is again, Christ Jesus. The third time in two verses that Christ Jesus has appeared. Paul's an apostle from Christ Jesus. And he is, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. The command is from Christ Jesus. And in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace are from Christ Jesus. Now, I told you earlier that letters in Paul's day had conventional openings. There would be a statement of the author, a statement about the recipient, and some kind of well-wish greetings. That was a secular conventional form of writing. Paul takes that slot in the, in the letter form, and he fills it with theological significance. In other words, for Paul, a greeting is never just a greeting. He doesn't say, as was typically done in letters, greetings, and then moves on. For him, he uses the words grace, mercy, and peace, which are his greeting to his uh, recipient, in this case, Timothy, and all who would read this letter. And it is a blessing, independence on God, the source of it, But it's not a mere formality. Think about these words. Grace, mercy, and peace. Doesn't that have a way of trying to summarize why we think the gospel is good news for sinners? Because what God is doing for sinners in His beloved Son is pouring out upon the unworthy and the rightly guilty, pouring out grace, mercy, and peace upon them. That the undeserving and the unworthy are recipients not of a greeting, but of actual grace, mercy, and peace. I mean, this is what is astounding and awe-striking about the Christian life, that we are recipients of this, not in a mere letter, but quite literally by the work of God, by His Holy Spirit in Christ. We have received grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is undeserved. It's the gift of God. 
It's reminding that when God acts towards sinners, he does so in an act of salvation that is based in his grace. And that what he pours upon them by his grace is mercy. His compassion for sinners. They needed help. They needed the pity of Almighty God. And God has come to be their help, to be their salvation, to be their Savior. Paul's already called God our Savior. He's already called Christ Jesus our hope. How is it that God is Savior and that we have hope in Christ? Because from the Father and the Son come grace and mercy and peace. This is a trilogy of terms as a gift. And peace is the result of God's work. If grace is unconditionally at work in the life of the sinner through the beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and mercy and compassion from God is poured out upon the undeserving, what's that result in? In other words, when God does this gracious work, what's that leave us with? What's the, the outcome? And the outcome is peace with God. Peace, not enmity. Peace from God, not hostility. Peace from God, not condemnation. In other words, we can be amazed at what's tucked in here in this little greeting in verse 2 when we remind ourselves what contrasting words are not present. The word is not condemnation. It's not judgment. It's not alienation. It's peace, grace, and mercy and peace. This is what has come from God the Father and the Son to us by His Holy Spirit. Praise God. From the Father and Christ Jesus. But you know what I love about this? Paul likes to add little words. Look at the very end. Who's Christ Jesus here? Earlier he called Christ Jesus our hope. What does he call Jesus here? Our Lord. Our Lord. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is Lord over the heavens and the earth. What must Paul view Jesus as? For him to say in the opening greeting of the letter... A status and rank belonging only to God. And Paul gives it to Jesus. This is what you would call a high Christology. It is what you would call an elevated view of Jesus. Jesus is no mere rabbi, no mere human teacher. He bears our sin, walks out of the grave after defeating death by his glorious resurrection. And he has the name that is above every name. It is right and good that Paul calls him Lord. And he's not just Paul's Lord. Look at the end of verse 2. It's a plural he says to Timothy, who is Christ Jesus for us? This one from whom grace and mercy and peace come. He's our Lord. It's our confession, Timothy. It's what we believe, Timothy. It's not just what Paul's opinion is. It's just not what Timothy has come to conclude. It is the Christian confession that this is who Jesus is. Believers in Jesus say that he is Lord. And we spend some significant time on these two verses, I know. But oh my goodness, there's good stuff here, isn't it? I mean, they're just thinking about these words and the glory of this opening greeting. We've seen the author. We've seen the writer. We've seen, or the author is the writer. We've seen the, the author. We've seen the recipient. Secondly, we've seen the, the opening a greeting, the grace, mercy, peace line. Thirdly. And now, fourthly, let's look into a bit of this letter in verses 3 and 4. In verses 3 and 4, he does not start as he might some other letters of his, with a word of thanksgiving. He gets right to the point. It, it makes it seem like while Paul would no doubt be thankful about many things, it's just time to get down to business. There's an urgency that you feel. In fact, he uses the word. 
In verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. So to summarize what verses 3 and 4 are getting at, he's saying, Timothy, I want you to stay where you are. That's Ephesus. Stay where you are so you can bring back the distracted people to the main thing, which is the gospel work. Because right now, there's some deviancy from it. Right now, people are deviating from it. Certain persons are teaching things and, and others are following suit. So I need you to step in. Because the gospel is being obscured by nonsense. So Timothy is being told here as a young man, I need you to stay. And that, I think, helps us to imply Timothy's already in Ephesus when he gets this letter. We can say that the destination of the letter known as 1 Timothy is Ephesus. Because when Timothy gets this letter, he's being told, now I want you to stay. And, you know, was that command to stay because Timothy was trying to leave? He's like, Ellis, I've been here long enough. Paul's already spent some time in Ephesus in previous months. I urged you as I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any doctrine, different doctrine. Paul has already told Timothy to stay, and it looks like that imperative has not expired. Timothy needs to feel a sense of perseverance and long-term commitment here, at least longer than he had anticipated initially. Maybe even longer than Paul had thought. Because who knows how long it takes to work through certain problems. It's not like Paul could say, all right, Timothy, I want you to set your clock. I want you to give it six months. If things aren't resolved, you should get out on out of there and leave them to themselves. He says, all right, Timothy, you're there. You're in Ephesus, and Timothy's reading this. And the first thing in the body of the letter is, Timothy, you're not going anywhere. Okay, so I'm staying in Ephesus. I'm staying there. Now, Ephesus is a very important city. It had about a quarter of a million people in the ancient world. It's the third largest city in the Roman Empire, only behind Rome and Alexandria. So Ephesus, we're not talking about a, a small town. We're talking about a major metropolis in the ancient world of a quarter of a million people. Filled with political and commercial enticements. As well as a pagan goddess named Artemis and a temple devoted to the goddess Artemis. And the temple devoted to Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was a place to go, a place to see, a place to travel, a place to do business, and had plenty of opportunities for pagan worship. So Paul says, all right, as I was going to Macedonia, I had urged you. Now, Macedonia is not a city. Macedonia is a region, a province, a Roman province where places like Thessalonica are. So Paul did ministry in Macedonia. Macedonia is northwest of Ephesus. So what I think we should imagine is Timothy and Paul are traveling together and Timothy is told, I'm going to Macedonia, you stay in Ephesus. I think that's what he's reflecting on. He told him in verse 3, as I urged you while I was going, you stay here. And now Timothy's being told, remain so my earlier exhortation to you continues. You need to remain at Ephesus. How does this correlate with the book of Acts? I know you're wondering. The book of Acts tells us of different missionary journeys. Where does this fit? Well, it doesn't correlate with the events in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. The book of Acts does not tell us all of the ministry of Paul. It tells us about, what, uh, about his, uh, his uh, house arrest in Acts 28 in the Roman Empire uh, in the city of Rome. 
Paul, in Acts 28, spends two years in house arrest, and then he's released. And 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are written after that. So this idea of going to Macedonia in this case and having Timothy stay here, it does no good to say, now what chapter in Acts does that correspond with? It doesn't. These are post-Acts ministry endeavors of Paul and Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy after Acts 28, and he tells Timothy, remain in Ephesus so that. That's a command, remain at Ephesus. You know if Paul... He views himself as a man under authority. He's an apostle by command. You know who else is a man under authority? Timothy. You know whose authority Timothy is under? Paul's. Timothy's not an apostle, but he's being instructed by an apostle. An apostle who is an apostle by divine command? Command of Christ Jesus. Timothy is to remain so that he might charge certain persons. There's a trickle-down effect of authority. Do you see it? Timothy is to give instruction. He's to charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Why should they listen to Timothy? Because Timothy's been instructed by Paul. Oh, why should they listen to Paul? Because Paul, by divine command, is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And there, it doesn't get any higher than that. Like, that's a supreme authority. So, grounding all of it is a divine command from Christ Jesus and the Father to Paul, and then through Paul to Timothy, and then through Timothy to these certain persons. They're unnamed. I don't think it's because they didn't know their names. Because these certain persons who are teaching would be known to the Ephesian church. You don't have people teaching in churches you don't know. We can imply that these who are teaching are people within the congregation of Ephesus. And that's an interesting situation because way back in Acts 20, when Paul did make a go through Ephesus and spent some time there, he says in Acts chapter 20, in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. My goodness, what a prophetic word. In Acts chapter 20, Paul saw it coming. He knows when I leave here, there will be others who want to prevail upon you, upon your own growth and naivete. They want to take advantage and they will try to draw away after themselves people and they will be teaching twisted things, not sound things. What's Timothy having to deal with? The stuff Paul warned about. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. Timothy's to get involved. That might not be easy. Charging certain persons, that sounds like That sounds like getting in their business and getting directly in front of them and with them. Here's what Timothy's not supposed to do. Go home and wait on the Lord. (laughs) Timothy's being told, you need to do something. You need to charge certain persons. It's time to act. Not because Timothy wouldn't bathe it all in prayer. But this isn't happening apart from his intervention. Timothy, I need you to make a charge. I need you to issue an order, a directive. It's a military term. Timothy, you've got some authority. Not because you're an apostle of Christ Jesus, but because I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus and I'm directing you. And so to defy Timothy would be to defy Paul. And to reject Paul's authority is to reject that of Christ Jesus. This doesn't end well. 
Remain at Ephesus so that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, Paul's not beyond naming people occasionally. He is going to name some people before this chapter is over. But he doesn't name them here. But there are certain persons. So it's not an individual, but a plurality of problems. Now, what are they to be charged not to do? Not to teach any different doctrine. You know how earlier I said in verse 2 where Timothy's called a true child in the faith? That there was clearly a recognized understanding about what Christians confess? We can imply the same thing about verse 3. Different doctrine is the opposite of or leaving of sound doctrine. And it must imply that Paul and the apostles had an understanding of what constituted sound doctrine that they passed on to their churches so that if you denied and deviated from that, you were teaching different doctrine. Your teaching was unsound. Your teaching was twisted things like in Acts chapter 20. So charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It's to command the false teachers to stop. And that's because false teaching hurts people. False teaching poisons souls. You say we're dead in sin apart from Christ. No denial of that. It's to say that our understanding of Scripture is twisted and poisoned by those whose unsound minds and words fail to speak in accordance with what Christ and his apostles have taught. This is why cults are such a scourge upon the Christian faith throughout the history of the ages. Because they can sound so superficially warm and inviting. As if they were to say, well, you know, we talk about Jesus too. We like the Bible too. But you also need this book of Mormon. You say, well, wait a second, wait a second. What, what do you mean? What's going on in this particular book? Well, things that are very different from the book they first mentioned. And they deviate from and wholly contradict things in the scriptures. And all of a sudden you realize that there are people in Ephesus and there are people today in 2023 operating under the guise of I'm a Christian. And what they teach is not what Christians confess and believe. And there are people in the church. What's fascinating is this is not just an outside problem. Where is this sickness? It's in their church. Whoa! It's in their church. They're teaching these certain persons a different doctrine. Which means we can objectively identify what Christians should confess and believe and pass on from one generation to the next. And these people are not doing that. Their agenda is something else. And because false teaching hurts people, if they are not stopped, then the spiritual well-being and health of the congregation is no doubt compromised even more. Spiritual doctrine, spiritual falsehood, I should say, and false doctrine hurt people. So when he says to Timothy, I need you to charge them, I think he's saying you need to get publicly involved. You need to get together. You need to have meetings. You need to have hard conversations. You need to ask hard questions. And you need to speak about the things I'm speaking about. And then he may need to not only bring public rebuke, but public correction. He may need to say, this is what has been taught about Jesus. That is not what we say. This is not what the Jesus himself taught. Now, what could they be wrapped up in? Verse 4 probably gives us a clue about some of the different doctrine that they have deviated into. So look at verse 4 with me. If they've been told not to teach any different doctrine, 
nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now this long verse is a way of saying, Timothy, you have a twofold charge. Tell them not to teach different doctrine and not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And I think the specifics of verse 4, these myths and endless genealogies, that might not even sound very specific, can sound actually very general, but it's more specific than verse 3. Whatever these myths and endless genealogies are, it's probably an example of the different doctrine in verse 3 that they're teaching. Now, according to Titus chapter 114, which Paul wrote also after Acts and in the same season of time where he's writing to Timothy and Titus, his co-workers, he says to Titus that there are people teaching Jewish myths And the only other time Paul uses the word myths is here in 1 Timothy. If in Titus he's concerned about Jewish myths, it's very likely that these genealogies and myths are appeals of material toward the Old Testament or maybe some uh, documents written between the Old and the New Testament in the intertestamental period. Documents and books that are not inspired and are not canonical and yet talk about and speculate about a variety of different things. Perhaps these teachers, in other words, are spending their time thinking about and speculating in ways from the Old Testament that are obscuring the gospel and distorting sound doctrine. That what they're teaching is actually affecting the soundness of what the people have been taught prior. If Paul and Timothy and others have been working hard in Ephesus to exalt Christ and make clear how to understand the scriptures, these people are now getting in that way. They're obstructing They're not helping. And when teachers serve as an obstruction to the spiritual well-being and growth of other people, they must be stopped. And Timothy is told, you need to charge them. You need to get in their face. You need to stop them. Timothy's a young guy. I don't know how this would have come across. Big gulp, maybe. (laughs) He's just thinking, oh my goodness, what a responsibility. Spiritual well-being of the whole Ephesian church on my shoulders. No, not true. But of course, in verses 3 and 4, this would no doubt have been a heavy command Paul jumps right into, doesn't he? This is not an occasional thing on the periphery of these false teachers. Verse 4 says, they've devoted themselves to this. That's what's so crazy about it. It's all they want to talk about. It's all they want to teach. It's in their minds. It's out their mouths. They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, speculations that result. What's promoted is speculations rather than stewardship from God that's by faith. Paul Paul doesn't think this is a good outcome then. Because in verse 4, the speculations that are coming from things that are not grounded in a sound reading of the Bible... And that are engaging in all sorts of uh, extraneous and tangential pursuits of this or that. That have nothing to do with what it is to build up the faith of the saints. And to point people toward the mission of the gospel. And to exalt Christ for who he truly is. These speculations are what are promoted. They become known for this. The teachers like it. They like being known For their speculations. They're devoted to it. It's what they think about. Others are entranced by it. Oh, you know, this is so interesting. Oh, this is so fascinating. Tell me more of this. Crack open this for me. Tell me all the secrets. And who knows the ways in which this had been marketed within the church. To draw in crowds who were just enamored 
with myths and endless genealogies. The speculations that are promoted are so rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. So what's the thing being obscured there? It's at the end of verse 4. The stewardship from God, stewardship is another word for the word work. Stewardship or work from God that is by faith is no doubt the gospel that is received and taught and believed by faith, the sound doctrine that is obscured by the false teachers in their wild speculations and in their unhealthy devotion to what doesn't help people know Christ. The speculations are promoted rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. They've been entrusted. These Ephesians have been entrusted with the gospel. And the gospel seems to not be the main thing. It's being sidelined. It's being sidelined by sort of some kind of glittering, glowing set of teachings by certain persons who are drawing people away. And Paul knows it is the sound teaching of the gospel and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ that both saints need to be saved, that sinners need to be saved, and that saints need to grow. The gospel is for Christians, you might say. And here, Timothy is to be told the stewardship from God that is by faith is being threatened by the false teachers, these certain persons. When we look at verses 1 to 4 and try to think about applying this, even though I've done a little bit of that along the way, notice that in the command in verse 3, remain at Ephesus, that's a command. Well, that obviously doesn't transfer over. You and I are not in Ephesus. So here's a command that we are not obeying. Like it says, remain at Ephesus. Mike, Mike, we're supposed to obey that? Remain at Ephesus was unique to Timothy's particular responsibility. So we can see like the, the cultural tailoredness to that. That's not a moral command. This isn't because of what the scripture teaches elsewhere. This is because circumstantially, this is what would be best for Timothy and for that church. So when Paul says remain at Ephesus, that's not an imperative that transfers over. But what's Timothy supposed to do and be concerned about? Ah, now this gets down to the spiritual business we always want to be concerned about as well. To ensure that false teaching is not being spread in the Ephesian church, well, we want to ensure that as well for healthy churches in 2023. It matters what is taught. In fact, as believers in Christ Jesus, we ought to be convinced, not only from 1 Timothy, but elsewhere where it is taught too, that sound doctrine, knowing the truth about Christ and rightly handling His Word, is absolutely crucial for our growth and discipleship. That's why we want to gather together. We want to think about the Bible. We want to look at the words and how things come together. We want to give our attention to the Scriptures. We're not trying to entertain. We're trying to say we want to know God, and He's made Himself known in His Word. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? So we want to ensure that false teaching is not being spread. We want to thwart the spread of false doctrine. And we want to cultivate a knowledge of sound doctrine. We want to think about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We want to think about church history and tradition and the creeds and interpretation of the word of God. We're not trying to be new and reinvent the wheel. That's how cults start. We're trying to do something old. We're trying to hold to old truths. We're trying to dig our heels in in the way the saints of old understand the scriptures to exalt Christ that we might be saved and that we might grow in salvation in Christ. This means 
That our goal as a church, it's not the responsibility of any one individual, it's the church's call to keep the main thing the main thing. And that is the gospel. I love the way Tim Keller put it. He says, because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. Don't you love that? The gospel is endlessly rich. And that means when we say that the gospel is the main thing, that will never be an irrelevant main thing. Obscured by some greater or more relevant thing. There's nothing more relevant than what's eternal. And there's nothing more relevant than what Christ has done that has changed the world and that changes sinners. The gospel is endlessly rich. And so yes, praise God, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing in a church. And lastly, friends, can't we see the, this greeting? Grace, mercy, and peace. That's not just a polite greeting. These are the blessings of the Christian life. How are we changed? If not by the grace, mercy, and peace. Not from ourselves. To us from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace from God. Making us saints. Calling us together by his word. That we might attend to the scriptures. That this is not just the word of Paul. But the word of Christ. Through Paul his apostle. By divine command. That in studying it. Our understanding of the word. We more and more sound. And our convictions of the scripture. Will grow in delight and confidence. And our love of Christ Jesus. May the Lord grant it to abound. Let's pray.